On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Tarek Shakut. He is the co-CEO at Sonar. We're going to be talking about software is eating the world and AI is accelerating it. What do I mean by that? Well, I love the fact that we're going to be talking about how every company wants to be a software company and AI is potentially just really an extension of that. And these companies are now having to pivot and deliver software, whereas previously they were consumers. We're going to be talking about the enterprise, we're going to talk about the board and their impacts, and we're going to talk about what clean code is and how important that is to the equation. I think we have a great episode. Thanks for being on, Tark. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Before we start, um, I'd like if everyone could get to know you a little bit better to, to know what Sonar does, a little bit of your background, and then we'll dive in and, and kind of see uh, where we can go. So Sonar, um, we, we make uh, a number of software solutions, um, including Sonar Lint, Sonar Cube, and Sonar Cloud, that we really describe as clean code tools. And what we mean by that is that we provide tools that developers use, about 8 million developers around the world, use to make their software more secure, more reliable, more maintainable, more readable, really just higher quality, um, so that you end up with a better product at the end of the day. We are an open source company. Um, the vast majority of our users use the open source versions. And then, of course, we've got the enterprise versions if you need some additional functionality. So that, in a nutshell, is um, is is who we are and what we do and how we approach this topic. Um, I joined about four months ago. Um, so I'm relatively new here at Sonar. I joined with our founder and uh, my co-CEO, Olivier, who uh, founded the company 15 years ago. Before here, I was president at Bumble. Um, the the mobile app social um, app company primarily dating apps and and social discovery apps helped that business scale from a couple hundred million in revenue to about a billion in revenue. Before that, uh, was president of the cloud business at Google um, from relatively early scale to um, to to what it is today. So really have um, a fairly diverse background, but one that that has kept it interesting. Absolutely. No, I love it. Um, you know, I think before um, on our pre-call, we talked about how every company is becoming a software company. And, and you're seeing that transformation. You're seeing companies try to shift how they interact with technology from being consumers to producers. At a high level, when we talk about you know, every company is trying to become a software company, that that that's a, that could be a little bit misleading as well because they're not all shipping software that they're selling. That's not the revenue model. So when we talk about that, when we say that, when we hear that, what are we really hearing? Well, I mean, I I think what's happening is more and more companies are realizing that technology is at the heart of what they do. So yes, they're not necessarily building a software solution, a SaaS tool, something like that, and shipping it for a, you know a, with a subscription licensing model. But if you look at a company like JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Citigroup, any of the large banks, they've got tens of thousands of developers, software developers writing code for custom applications, custom use cases inside of their company. These things will help, they, they, these developers will help you write software for anti-money laundering and fraud. They are making your, your mobile app, they're making your online banking experience, they're doing all sorts of things that are really core to what any of these financial institutions do. Um, and so in a way, I think we all expect 
of course, Google or Salesforce or whoever is a software company, they've got thousands of developers and they need to have the disciplines of a software company. But you're now seeing companies in the pharmaceutical space, in the insurance space, in the banking space. You know, General Motors has an EVP. I mean, Mike Abbott joined relatively recently as EVP of software reporting, as I understand it, directly to marry the CEO there, right? The idea of a car company having an EVP of software is really, I think, extraordinary. It shows you where the world is and it shows you how much the product that they're shipping is a software-enabled product. I guess if we use that as an example, because I think, you know, if we're talking about GM, we're talking about companies that are moving into the software space. Traditionally, they manufactured cars. And um, even to that, they a lot of the components, they're not even really responsible. They just get it delivered. It's being assembled. And I think I spoke to somebody at one point, they mentioned they may not even have the ability to customize some of those components. And then you have a Tesla who from the ground up obviously had software in mind. A lot of things that we see with the benefits of of having that. I guess as you're looking at the companies that are a little bit more traditional legacy companies, and they want to move towards a model where software is at the core of what they're doing. And you mentioned obviously, you know, GM just hired a new EVP of software. How 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 do you shift that mindset? Like, where does that begin? Because obviously, we're that's a big shift from going, hey, we you know we put put a car together to now we want to have the car be a piece of extended software that's getting deployed and that we could potentially interact with on the road? Yeah, I, I, I think the first part is recognizing the importance of what you just said, right? Um, I had the CEO of one of the major car companies uh, tell me a couple of years ago that they are certain, I don't know if uh, Elon and the folks at Tesla would agree with this, but they are certain they could build a better mechanical vehicle than Tesla. They are also certain that they cannot build better software than Tesla, and they're afraid that software is going to be what people um, are buying increasingly, right? The, the, the mechanics will become a somewhat of a commodity, and it's the differentiated experience of the software, whether that's your display, whether it's the control system in the car, any number of things, right? But that is going to be at the core. And I think recognizing that as a starting point, recognizing how the dynamics in your industry the competitive, the consumer dynamics in your industry are changing is step one. Because I, I still meet a lot of companies who say, yeah, we do some software. My CIO worries about that. And, you know, I trust that she's got it or he's got it or wh- whatever it happens to be. I think it has to become, for many, many companies, has to become a CEO level topic, right? Because it be- it is a core driver of differentiation in any number of different areas. Once you have that, you also have to recognize how it changes your business model, right? And I'll give you the example of, of, an, of an oil company as an example, right? The business of an oil company, generally speaking, is to vastly oversimplifying, and apologies to anyone in the oil industry who is on this call, but you know, you spend years and years and years trying to figure out where to dig a hole in the ground, and it's a really expensive hole that you're digging in the ground. And so the culture of a lot of these companies, you're building a manufacturing plant, you're, build, you're drilling in a certain place, is you're really careful, you do a lot of research, you build, you, you check it a hundred times and you drill once, right? That is, that's the sort of mindset that you have. It's a capital mindset, right? You're deploying capital, it's hard to change, and you have to get it right. With software, you it's a much more iterative mindset that you need to have, right? It is particularly if you move to to modern ways of software development, you are 
releasing all the time. And of course, you want it to be safe. You want it to be well thought through. You want it to be a good experience. But the ability to try something, test it, iterate on it, fix it, et cetera, is so much higher. And that changes what I refer to often is the clock speed, right? The clock speed of certain industries is really slow because you have to, you have long iteration cycles. The clock speed for software is very fast, right? Um, and you need to have the ability to keep up with that clock speed. I guess as you're kind of looking at that, you know, some of some of that, I think when you're talking about the high-level shift that's got to come at the top, how much of this becomes cultural? You know, obviously, building a car it has complexities, if we're going to just use that, or it could be a lot of different things. It has a lot of complexities. People are engineeringly capable, but also a lot of times, once design, you're reverse engineering a lot of stuff, there's a different different science to it uh, than computer science, you know, the science of software engineering. When you're looking at the cultural side of this shift as companies are trying to become more software first in, in their views, is that is that as big or as big a hurdle as anything else? I, I think it's I think there's a cultural aspect and I think there's an education aspect, right? And what do I mean by that? The cultural piece, I think, very much gets down to what I was just referring to around clock speed, right? Like you need to make sure in a software world that you've got a test and learn mindset, right? You have to be uh, willing to experiment. You need to understand, um, you know, how to be kind of agile in the way that you are approaching a lot of business problems. And there is absolutely a cultural point to that, right? Um, the the education part, though, is I think you also, if you really want to be good at this, it has to infuse all parts of the company, right? Again, to my to my earlier point, it can't just be the CTO or that group of developers sitting over here who worry about this. It's not that everyone needs to be a developer. I'm not saying that, but you need to know what questions to ask, right? If you're the CEO, if you're the head of manufacturing, if you're that, you need to know what questions to ask. How do you collaborate? Well, because like all good systems, the software and the hardware have to work together. The reason Apple is so good is because the software and the hardware is designed to work together, right? You're building a car, you're building a CPAP machine for consumers to use, but any number of different things, you want the different parts of the experience to work together well. And that means that the silo that a lot of companies have had, that is IT, needs to really change. So if we're, if we're kind of looking at that and we're looking at, and obviously, you know, software's gotten, even data, data's gotten more complex. Even when you look at a company that is growing their, you know, they're not actually Ship, you know, building shippable code. They're actually more on the data side. They have data scientists. They're trying to actually do more with their data. That's gotten complex as well. And as you're kind of looking at companies that are trying to shift from that consumer side to producer side of, of in terms of the technology, and now we're looking at something like AI, and you see companies that potentially are still trying to find their way to becoming a, a better execution of software type company. How does AI complicate that? Because I think for the last year, all we've heard about is people need to get on the AI bandwagon. This is going to be the core of everything. Every software company now has an AI, you know, uh, co-pilot component. Uh, this is becoming more of a conversation than anything else. And I and I start to wonder companies that haven't executed as a software company or, or as you've kind of been talking about, all of a sudden are thinking, I need to be 
on this AI bandwagon. I need to be a little bit ahead so I can catch up. That seems potentially very dangerous. I, I think a lot of it comes back to that education point that I was talking about. I think it is very dangerous to outsource, and outsource doesn't mean to another you know, company, although in many cases, that is what you're doing. But I think it's dangerous to outsource the strategy and the um, execution of AI to, to somebody else, right? So does that mean you can't go and buy Einstein from Salesforce or whatever it is? No, absolutely not. You should, you know, n- not every company is going to have the AI scientists and engineers that they need to build their own custom things. And most companies shouldn't build their own custom AI tools. However, you should be, in, in my opinion, you should be an educated consumer, know how to deploy it, know how you t- customize it. And again, that iterative, agile mindset and that test and learn mindset and knowing where um, to kind of push with, the, with your experiments, how to, how to keep the ball moving forward is, I think, going to be really important. It's, it, with AI, like a lot of change, this is not going to be and then a miracle occurs and all of a sudden you've got customer service uh, all handled by AI. It's going to be iterative steps and you need um, you, you need people who are willing to shepherd this along the way. And again, they have to be all over the company, not just one group in the company. How do you, you know, if you're CEO of a company and you hear this talk of AI and obviously you'd like your company to benefit you you want to see those benefits and, and you you're hearing about it, you're seeing people get excited about, you know, LLMs. How do you advise that level in terms of stakeholder to understand that it is a journey? I obviously education's core to it and that it's it is a journey. There are steps to it, and you're not gonna go from zero to there. Cause we see a lot of times technology not take off or not get implemented correctly because time uh time to do it right is is critical and we want to do it faster hence we come up with various technical debt concepts that we we see out there how do how do we how do we help that that highest level understand that that's more of a journey as you kind of alluded to i i think um you're exactly right that a lot of times the hype um takes over and you you sort of lose the you you lose the plot right and so some of this is just basic program management type of things that we sort of sometimes hear things like AI and big data and whatever. And, and you sort of say, okay, that's different, but it's really, it's really not in many ways, right? You need to know what are you trying to accomplish? You need to know what are the steps to get there? You, you should in advance know what you expect to get out and then check the result against what you expect to get out of the, of the program. So I think there's a lot of the basic disciplines that are important uh, I always say I was speaking to a, a group of of other CEOs earlier this week, and the thing I kept coming back to was with a lot of what's happening with AI. I think part of the minds you need to have governance over this, and I don't mean so much governance that you stifle all the innovation and everything goes to a committee and all of that. But there's an approach of trust but verify, right? To channel, uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, right? Um, who said trust but verify. If, if I take code generation, the space that Sonar plays in at the moment, absolutely every company, I think 92% of developers say they're using a AI code generation tool to some extent. Okay, So that's great. We should keep doing that. It is definitely making developers happier. It is making them more productive. It is generally 
yielding really good outcomes. However, you shouldn't trust the AI to produce code that is perfect, right? I mean, maybe it is, and that's great, but you should um, check and make sure, does it have any security issues, right? Because the code generators are trained off of code that has bugs, has security issues, and you can manipulate them, right? So you should have the output generated and then using you know our tools or other tools out there like sonar cube you should check and say does it have reliability issues does it have bugs does it have any security issues and then have a human review those results and make sure that you're verifying the output right i'm giving you the example of software but really anywhere this 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 uh, should be the case if you are using this for content development you should read the results. You shouldn't just put it up on your website without reading it. You should make sure that it's being edited. And this all sounds obvious, but I'm surprised at how many people I meet right now who are not doing those basic steps in part because they don't feel educated enough about the technology. So almost who am I to second guess what the AI engineers who are really smart are doing, or they don't know how to go to that step and the volume is so large you know, the volume of code generated is so large. How do you actually check everything? Well, there are tools and capabilities and processes that will help you do that. You just have to be proactive about it. Interesting. Actually, I'm going to come back to that. Um, it's just something popped into my head. I, th I thought the interesting question to you is, I hear a lot about, especially when you're talking about the board, talk about governance. I start thinking about cybersecurity. We, we've seen cybersecurity be considered defensive. They're trying to be offensive. We've seen data governance be defensive, try to be offensive. This is, a, you know, these are the shifts that we're starting to see. When it comes to the enterprise and the board, it always feels like there's a bit of a react, you know, react, delayed reactive step in that process in terms of, I really don't care until something goes wrong. When we're looking at AI, you know, trust but verify in some areas, in some areas you can't afford that. I wonder if there's going to be a similar analogy of there's going to be that reaction of, oh, well, the AI went wrong. We have to now be reactive to that because we didn't anticipate that or that was a use case that was outside of what we thought about. Because can you really ever, like cybersecurity, be 100% sure that I mean, that's going to be challenging? Is that is that fair or or will AI maybe improve and surpass those standards? Well, I, I think the answer is probably both, honestly. Um, so I'm, I'm on uh, the board of two public uh, companies. Uh, the boards of two public companies. And in all of those, um, in, in, in both of those cases, we've put a lot of time and energy into what is what we call the acceptable use policy around AI, right? And it is basically saying, what is the company comfortable with? What and, and being very explicit about what is the company, what are the board and the management team comfortable doing with AI? And we may say, you know what, I, and the, I'm making up this example, but for legal and copyright issues. We don't quite understand it yet. There's a lot of reputational risk. Let's say that that's not okay for now. For code generation, it is, but you must use a code scanner and you must have a human review the results, right? Um, I, I think that being explicit about this um, is is really important. And I am seeing, all of, you know, both of the boards I'm on and a lot of the folks I talk to are recognizing that in this area, we can get it right the first time, as opposed to, I think, what's happened with some of these areas like security where boards have been playing catch up on this. I think many of them have learned their lesson and you can be, you can get it right in the beginning and you can get it right by setting the ground rules and you can get it right by making sure that the policies and procedures that are in place are uh, mitigating the risk. But then I do also 
think that many companies are scared off by the headlines, right? And I think what everyone's got to figure out here is, you know, where is there an acceptable uh, experimentation approach? Maybe it never sees the light of day, but you actually use it a bunch internally, right, to figure out, you know, for internal help desk as opposed to external customer support or things like that. Because I do think the learning part of this is super important. And you don't want to be one of those companies that says, the risk is too high, it's too unknown, I can put rules and all the rules are going to say no, right? Like, I think you need to define acceptable risk as opposed to no risk. And that, that that's the balance that I think companies are trying to strike right now. I mean, I think that that's going to be interesting to watch. And I, I, I'm i hoping it's going to be, uh, you know, there's some learning lessons from what we've seen. And obviously, I think we're getting ahead of it. It seems like it's one of those where we're talking about it. It's becoming apparent to everyone. No one should be, you know, looking at this as a surprise, you know, a year or two year if you don't have your governance. And as you mentioned, your acceptable use uh, policies in place. I'm hoping that's going to be the case. You mentioned something about, obviously, I know Clean Code, the Sonar Cube um, product. Um, and actually, I was going to ask you how you envision this because I think a lot of times we're hearing of AI and Hollywood's done a great job of of setting expectations that never really come to fruition, but it's what gets stuck in people's minds. Do you env- how do you envision the relationship between developer and AI on the on on the coding side, however way, you know, obviously we could talk about your product, different products, but how do you envision that relationship? How how does that going to look going forward? You know, I, I think it's it's uh very dangerous and we will look back five years at whatever I say right now and we'll <laughs> you know, how overly optimistic or overly pessimistic I was about certain parts. However, all of that said, I you know, I think it is very clear that um AI is going to have a massive impact on software development, right? It just, you're already seeing it and the models are only going to get better and better and better. I'm very excited about the ability to start tuning some of these code generation models with your own code base, right? Because I think that that's been one of the gaps that has existed. And as you can start tailoring some of these LLMs with your own code base, you'll start to get to the next level of complexity or be able to unlock the next level of complexity of you know, is the code right for me as opposed to is it just, you know, a uh, glorified version of Stack Overflow where you're taking snippets from one place to another, right? So I think you're going to see a lot of advances and the AI will get better. You know, when you're dealing with 50 million lines of code, 100 million lines of code, 200 million lines of code, whatever it is that a lot of these companies have, I think it's going to be some time before there's any plausible scenario in which, okay, the AI just does it all, right? So I don't, in the near and medium term, I don't think that's the case. I think you've got the role of the developer will change and the role of the AI will change. A lot of the more basic work that people, frankly, didn't get a lot of joy out of doing beforehand will um, be done by the AI. And I think that you know developers will be able to focus on the hard problems. They will also have to be, and this is part of where I think we need to understand how we make this happen, they'll have to be copy editors more, right? They'll have to actually look at the results and say, ooh, that's a mistake. I don't like that. Oh, there's a security issue here, whatever. And and that's, I think, going to be a process for people. It's just like with, you know, with with freelance journalism right now, I'm assuming that ChatGPT or whatever it is can eventually write the basic skeleton of an article for you. 
Then you got to go make sure it didn't make up facts. It just didn't hallucinate. It didn't do this, didn't do that. So the role of a journalist there will be different than it was three years ago. I think the same thing's going to be true in the software world. But I think, you know, AI code generation, the co-pilot type of um, uh, tools are here to stay and they're only going to get better. And the question is, how do you incorporate them in your workflow and not feel threatened by them? I want to ask you, before I forget, uh, about how software pricing models are going to change. Because obviously, for the longest time, per seat, you know, is, is how things have done. I mean, you know, maybe maybe there's volume licensing, all those kind of things. But there's certain models that have been in place. Obviously, uh, you're Google Cloud. You're familiar with you know the, the model when it comes to the cloud. When it comes to AI tools, and you know, I, I was on the website uh, for Sonar, and I saw that you guys have. Yeah, different different pricing models. When it comes to AI, and we're talking about some kind of benefit, whether it's cost savings, efficiency, that seems very difficult to quantify. In some cases, right? And and you can, if you want to talk about, you know, in in, in the Sonar case, that's that's great as well. But it's going to be difficult. And I mean, there's a lot of enterprises that are not on that model yet, and they might have to shift. But how do you envision? Yeah, again, we're, we're we're putting on our goggles, I and mean, you could talk about the current uh, life at Sonar as well. But how do you envision all this kind of working in the next couple of years as as AI solutions become more prevalent? You know, I, I think the companies that are not successful are going to be companies that try and have pricing models that are not aligned with the value that's being delivered. Right. So we made a very deliberate choice at Sonar to to price our uh, software by the line of code analyzed. Right. So it's more of a consumption model. If you want to analyze 100 million lines of code, price is X. If you want to analyze only 10 million, even if it's the same number of developers, the price is Y. Right. And, um, and we, and that's because we think that's aligned to the value that we're delivering. I, I do think that more and more, if you want to be successful in the software world, you have to make sure there is an alignment there. And it's not an alignment on the unit of work. Right. Which in many cases would be how many seats are you selling? I think it's, you know, more and more going to be what is the value being delivered and what is the right way to to kind of proxy that. In our case, it's relatively straightforward, not not perfect. Right. We don't charge by number of bugs discovered or anything like that. But it's it's companies want predictability. Right. They want to know how much they're going to pay and they're going to want something tied to value. Right. In the cloud world, there's all these horror stories that you have where we charge on the consumption basis and occasionally you'd have the horror story of some developer somewhere forgot to shut down the VM that they had spun up and all of a sudden there's a $10,000 of costs uh, overrun that month. You know, I think that you need to have safeguards against that. Um, but generally speaking, most companies I talk to are happy as long as they can estimate it, it, it's predictable how much they're going to spend they're happy with it being aligned to consumption, right? And to, to, to the value generated. Um, earlier in my career, I was at a company called Trilogy and we tried to do, um, we made pricing and configurator software and we tried to do the purest version of value-based pricing that I've seen for software, which is if you get to raise your prices by X, we get 10% of X, right? Um, and it required, and, and we eventually moved away from it because it required, customers loved it, in concept, right? Um, they don't love it when they're now paying the the you know um, more than they think they should be paying. So they always want caps on it, which is fine. But you need an army of consultants and analysts to to track 
the value being delivered, right? So nobody wants that. And I think we're going to end up with this sort of proxy, if you will, um, like lines of code, um, like CPU consumption, things like that. Is that going to put a little, I guess, you know, start, startups, is that going to put a little pressure on them to really understand the value that they generate so that, as you mentioned, they can they can figure out how that, that structure is going to look for them? Yeah, I, I think there's been a little bit of a reflexive, um, or it's been very easy to just say, hey, it's per seat. And you know, uh, go ahead and pay us per seat. And that's industry standard, quote unquote. Uh, and I think that everyone, um, maybe not at the like pre-seed stage or, you know, at the seed stage, but as you want to scale, I think it becomes, everyone wants to know, um, particularly in this economy, but I think this will live past the current situation. Um, everyone wants to know what's the value that you're delivering and how do I justify this being one of the things I spend money on? So you have to have that alignment. Absolutely. I was going to say thank you for being on. Thank you for sharing. Um, obviously, uh, we can look back, and and uh, I think some of what we've talked about uh, probably is going to be uh, undecided in the near term. But in the in the long term, it could be interesting to see how we look back and see how it all played out. But I, I really do appreciate your time. If someone does want to reach out to you to learn more about Sonar or, or anything you talked about uh, on the show, what's a good way of touching base with you? You know, um, would welcome anyone uh, reaching out. Our our website is Sonar Source, um, so S O N A R Source S O U R C E dot com, um, and my email is first name dot last name at at sonarsource dot com. So feel free. Um, would would love to continue the dialogue. Awesome, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time again, um, and I and I appreciate you being on. That's it for the episode. Uh, we'll be back again, different guests, different topic. Until then, two things. One, if you found the episode useful, please share it with somebody else. I think we covered a lot of ground um, with software, the cultural shift in software, where AI is going, about code generation tools, uh, I think clean code, and what Sonar is doing is really interesting. So please reach out and find out more. At uh, we'll, we'll include the links in the, in the show notes so you guys can just kind of click. Um, also, please let me know if you guys want me to talk about another topic or another uh, a guest that could potentially specifically talk about something you want to hear. Let me know about that and I'll do my best. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.